Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to our next psalm in this series, Psalm number 14. And the psalm has at its opening a very common, a well-known verse that is uh, very common, easy to understand, and is used often as a backdrop by many apologists today. An apologist is somebody who debates, um, they make a case, and they build the framework to, uh, to debate with others, and they'll use this, this verse as a means to debate often with atheists, and will... Um, use this as the backdrop or foundation in public forum. And my goal today is not to have an apologetics session with you or to teach you how to become an apologist. Rather, I believe that the larger context digs a great deal more deeply than just learning how to debate atheists. Also, this psalm is used by many to teach the doctrine of total depravity, uh, which is useful, true, and really is a foundation piece for the whole first half of the book of Romans. I believe that Paul took this psalm along with Psalm 53 and used that as a backdrop for really the first nine chapters in the book of Romans. However, the psalms are given to us, as mentioned in previous weeks, to teach us how to emotionally uh, and spiritually respond to sorrow, to process sadness, frustration, and yet to still at the same time learn how to rejoice as well. The Psalms do not cause us to become hopeless, rather provide hope. So the Psalms are very emotive, and the larger framework of this Psalm begs a question for you and I this morning that we need to answer. Today's title is Responding to Atheism, but the question at hand is this, how do you and I respond biblically and in a godly manner to the ungodliness that is all around us and also within us. This psalmist is teaching us that it is godly and it is right to be angry, upset, and frustrated with ungodliness. But that response should drive us not to stay there in that frustrated manner. Rather, it should drive us to run to the place of salvation, the place of Zion, to the foot of the cross, and the place of salvation in the presence of God. So today's big idea is this. David is here. He's crying out to God. He's bearing his heart. David is teaching us in the psalm that it is godly to be frustrated, to be upset, to be rattled by the creed and the conduct of the atheist by the fool who cries out that there is no God. David's message teaches us how to respond and to process the wickedness of mankind. He gives us a godly assessment of the atheist. He teaches us through his response to be both, number one, honest about the extent of sin, about the fallenness of man, while also at the same time, and this is, a, this is the key, to remain steadfast in the hope of salvation and to look to God, the God of Zion for salvation, which brings joy and happiness and hope. So we're called to do both. There are most likely two objections this morning to the question at hand and to this big idea. Objection number one is this, that we are prone to polarizations. It's very common for people to think in terms of either or. They, they give way to the shifts of polarization where the one who points out the frustrations of society, 
who watches with great discernment the seismic shifts going on within the world towards paganism, towards evil, he is marked out as kind of a chicken little, right? The sky is falling, the sky is falling, everything's bad all the time. And so he's pegged as that when he's honest about assessing wickedness and sin. And so you couldn't possibly be post-millennial and be honest about the, the paganism and the, the shift of this world towards Satan. On the other hand, many who are seeking to just be positive all the time, they are seen as foolish and they're seen as having their head in the sand. Rather, this text, what it does for us is David's teaching us to, to grieve about the wickedness in this world, to grieve about uh, the seismic shifts that are happening, the propensity towards more and more greater evil. So David is teaching us to be honest about that while at the same time taking refuge in the sovereign one who's in control of all things. And you're like, how on earth are we supposed to do that though? Have you ever been there where you start to delve into learning about evil, learning about uh, being honest about those things in this world that are wrong, and, and you find yourself stuck there and feeling like there's no hope. But David provides us hope in this psalm as he points us to our salvation. The second objection that this passage overcomes is, well, it's arrogant to call out sin and to call out evil. It, be, it is becoming increasingly common to be seen as an arrogant person when you're frustrated with evil. I would contend that if David were alive and well today and... and uh, traveling among our churches, he would be seen as highly arrogant. But David is teaching the nation of Israel, the righteous ones, to, to actually sing about this, to believe these things, to learn how to, to call out sin while at the same time run to the foot of the cross. So let's read together, and I pray that this truth today shapes our hearts to be honest about sin while at the same time running to the foot of the cross. So let's read together Psalm chapter 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed detestable acts. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of injustice not know who devour my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with a righteous generation. You would be put to shame, or you would put to shame the plan of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would give us hearts that would be open and responsive to this passage, to your truth, your timeless truth. I pray this both within our own heart and how to balance our frustrations with wickedness, both within our own hearts, those that we love and those in this world, and balance that with uh, looking to the cross and trusting in the hope of our salvation, which is found through Jesus Christ alone. Give us grace as we walk through this passage together and we proclaim your truths. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. 
So if you're taking notes this morning, you'll see it's blank, but number one, you can write this in. We're going to look at the creed of the atheists. In order to know how to respond to someone who doesn't believe in God, we have to understand who they are. So we're going to look at its content. The fool has said, and here's the content of his creed. Number one, he just simply says, there is no God. This declaration makes the person who holds this belief, he's labeled a fool. The word is nafal in the Hebrew. There are several words used to describe this fool, but it's really pointing to his character that causes this declaration to come forth. And so the most general use is the one at play here. Simply put, they are living out a life that erases any hint of their being a god. They willfully seek to forget God. They will not live, and the word is in the Latin phrase is quorum deo, which simply means this. Quorum deo is a Latin phrase translated in the presence of God. It comes from Christian theology, which summarizes the idea of Christians living in the presence of and also understands that they're under the lordship of and they're called to live to the honor and glory of God alone. This fool willfully, as the scriptures say elsewhere, has become ignorant. He erases God from his life. Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, born in 1844 and died in 1900, had an incredibly profound impact on modern philosophy. And again, it's nothing new, but he resurrected this. And he was, uh, he was on a, a journey to bringing back a very staunch viewpoint of paganism. In Friedrich Nietzsche's opening pages of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, you quickly understand how much Nietzsche hated God, and not just him, but many. There's a section in the story where he's writing about what he considers in his viewpoint to be an apostate. He writes in the second stanza of of the apostate frame five. He says this, you know well the cowardly devil in you who would like to clasp his hands and fold his arms and to take it easier. It was this cowardly devil who persuaded you that there is a God. To Nietzsche, it is a fool to him to believe that there is a God. He believed that the Judeo-Christian belief took form through crafty, cunning scheming, describing its believers as half-wits. He thought they were foolish. So Zarathustra and his story and his companions, they laugh heartily as they listen to all this Christian philosophy. And he's listening to the night watchmen in the graveyard, and they're talking about believing in God. And he continues to the end of the second stanza, and it says this, That happened when the ungodliest word came from God himself, the word. Quote, there is one God. You shall have no other gods before me. And he describes God as an old grim beard of a God, a jealous one. And all the other gods laughed. He really summarized well so much of the viewpoint of the atheist. The word of God contends that this belief, written by Nietzsche and espoused by so many, is utter madness and it is utter foolishness. And it plays out not just in their creed, but also in their conduct and their way of life. So before we get too far into their actions, I want us to notice, secondly, where this atheist declaration comes from. What does this text say? Where is he saying this? As you read in Psalm 14, 1, it says... The fool has said, not just that there is no God, but he says this in his heart. 
he says this in his heart. Many arrogantly and vehemently oppose God, not just in their speeches and in their writings, for instance, like the Humanist Magazine, but notice in this passage that this creed is uttered and believed in his heart. We need to note several things about the heart of mankind. Number one, the heart thinks. The old adage out there is that there's several feet between the head and the heart, right? But according to Scripture and in, in Christian doctrine, where do you do your thinking? The Bible says as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, so the heart thinks. But also the heart speaks here too. Many times it says in the Bible, I have said in my heart, or I declared in my heart. And here the atheist is speaking and conversing with himself in his heart. The heart not only thinks, but it has a mouth and it speaks. The Bible also says out of the heart flows the issues of life. As you truly are in your heart, it's going to come out in your actions and in your conduct and your way of life. So this brings me to a deeper layer in the sermon today. You and I may be too quick to have a sense of pride because we don't audibly say and we don't audibly espouse that we don't believe in God. But notice the text says that it's in the heart that we can declare these things. We see this is in our actions that they declare their lack of belief in God and outright deny God. So who are these people? Are they only outside the confines of the visible church or could they be in the very house of God? And who is David really addressing in this passage? I would contend that John Calvin is correct in his commentary where he says the structure of the psalm very clearly shows that David means rather the domestic tyrants and the enemies of the faithful than the foreign ones. David was not talking about those outside of Israel. He is also not talking about those outside the church. We know that it is a temptation which pains us exceedingly, he says, to see wickedness breaking forth and prevailing in the midst of the church. The good and the simple unrighteously afflicted while the wickedly, wicked cruelly domineer according to their pleasures. David here is crying out to God over enemies, but it was the enemies of God within visible Zion, visible Israel. That's why he's crying for the Savior to come through Zion, and that is where he came, through the line of Israel to the world. So it's very easy for us to point out the sin outside the camp. It's very easy for us to point to, as we mentioned today, yeah, there's a lot of wickedness in this world that ought to cause us to grieve, but what ought to cause us to grieve more deeply, to take more seriously, is within the walls of the church, the visible church, the people of God. The church of Christ, in the church of Christ, do we grieve and cry out? Does that anger us much, as much as, as far uh, as, as those outside the church when we see wickedness and evil? Does it anger us as much as, as when we get frustrated with the talking heads on CNN? Does it anger us as much as those who come from the humanist organizations in this world? David is teaching the congregation to sing about this and to take seriously the sin within Israel. There are many within the church who I would call Christian atheists. You say, that's an oxymoron. It is. But it begs the point here. I believe that it is alive and well in the church because mankind is wicked. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is true. But in Christ, there are many who claim to be of Christ who are not. 
The Bible tells us that the wheat and the tares grow together until the end. Remember that in the Gospels? The wheat and the tare grow together until the end when it is separated out in final judgment. And so we grieve. It is my belief that many who suppose themselves to be believers, Christians, are really walking dead, who say one thing, but in their heart and their life and in their conduct, as well as in many moments, they really deny God. They really deny God. They may sing the songs, read the good book, teach Sunday school, serve on a committee, work as deacons, work in the nursery, you name it, and in the heart, in their heart, they're completely denying God. They are not living quorum Deo with God before them. I believe that many people who think that they believe in God really do not. That is, their belief makes no difference in their life. A fact that they betray through their actions and through their feelings. So I want us now to examine the conduct of an atheist, and we need to practice self-examination to ask ourselves, are we really any different? Number one, it says that they do no good. They do the direct opposite of what God says to do. If they do something right, uh, their motives, therefore, would be wrong, which makes it sinful. Verse 4 also says that they devour people. Notice that characteristic. They devour people. Here in this passage, they hate the poor and they use people. One of the biggest indications that someone hates God is that they use people. People are an object to them. They're a means to an end. They use people and they love things rather than loving people and using things. The Christian, the true Christian, loves God, loves others, and therefore fulfills the law. The one who hates God will inevitably hate God's people, and they will hate people in general. The minute someone is no longer benefiting an atheist, that person that they were using and abusing, they're quickly discarded like an old piece of cloth. People are seen as a commodity. And it's not just out there. I've also seen this within the walls of the church as well in the house of God. You say, how does this really look? How, how is it that we can go to church and still be an atheist? Give an example then. According to this passage, here's an example. An example of someone doing this is maybe uh, they think they're a Christian, but they're steeped and they're trapped in the sin of pornography. You say, what does that have to do with this? Well, how are they treating people? Those people on that screen who are acting those things out, how are you participating with that? How are you viewing that person? You're objectifying them, aren't you? That's, that's what that does. It objectifies them. It does not see them as a person to truly be valued and loved. Rather, they're a means to an end. So when you're alone with a phone or a screen, are you living quorum Deo with, before the face of God? Those who get alone with the phone or the screen and objectify other people, you are not living quorum Deo. You are living as if there is no God. You ever thought of that? You are an atheist. You don't believe him. You live as if God is not there. You are saying in your heart, there's no God. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. I don't know him. I don't love him. He is not my God. Yet half of men who propose to be Christians are steeped in pornography. They're atheists. They have yet to know God. 
This could be a woman who has developed an emotional attachment to someone at work because it makes them feel loved. You are using that man as a means to an end because it's all about who? Yourself. I am to be worshipped. He makes me feel good. Someone that's not your spouse, that you're to give your heart to, you're giving it to someone else. You're betraying the bond of love to the spouse that God has given to you. This woman is using this other person, this other man. In our day and age, it could also be another woman. Giving yourself to them in a sinful way, seeking attention from someone you ought not be seeking attention from. This is not Coram Deo. This is not before the face of God. This is you saying, there is no God. I am to be worshipped. This could be a child at home. You love mom and dad when you get what you want. You ever done that? Mom and dad are great when we're getting cheeseburgers and going to the park. But the minute I have to clean my room and vacuum, boy, I don't like mom and dad. You just see them as an object to get what you want rather than parents to be loved. Be careful. How do you respond when the answer is no to authority in your life? This parental object that gives you things you now rebel against. Spouses that you can do this to one another. We ought to confess that. You see your wife or your husband as a means to an end, an object, not a person to be valued. Parents, you can do this with your children too, expecting far, far more from them than what God expects. Putting undue weight and strain upon your dear children. So for the atheist, the true atheist, God is not only dead, but the atheist himself or herself must become a God to be worshipped. When they don't get worshipped, what happens? It's war, isn't it? When someone highly values themselves and you don't value them the way that they value themselves, now that God is dead, I've resurrected myself, and you don't give that to them, you don't worship them, it's war. You ever run into that? Someone whose head is so big, their ego is so massive that you're like, I don't know if they're going to make it through that door. You see it coming. The head's huge. And you don't bow down to them. You don't kiss their feet. How do they take that? It's war. So for the atheist, God is not only dead, but the atheist himself must then become God. So the pornographer, the adulterer, the rebellious child, the uncaring spouse, we are these things because in our heart... In those moments, God is dead, so we determine foolishly that we must then be God. Zarathustra, in that story, in Nietzsche, he not only had God killed and dead, but who was the other character that he taught? It's the Ubermensch, Superman. If God is dead, who is now God? Us, we are to become gods. So God is dead, ergo man is God. When God is dead, you must assume that position. Brothers and sisters, you and I are not exempt from that temptation to seek self-worship, to live as if God is dead, and to resurrect ourselves to be the Ubermensch, to be the superhumans. That temptation is as old as the Garden of Eden. Why did Eve truly fall? He said, when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be as God's. Satan's still using that same exact trick, and he's battling the church with that today, and that's why there's so much pride within the church of Christ. He wants you to believe that God is not always there, 
moment by moment. He's not watching. You don't have to live Coram Deo, and you can become little gods. You can be worshipped. You can carve out your little fiefdoms within the church. You can push her, you can posture yourself, you can push yourself around. You need a little bit of worship. Make your ego big. And in those moments, you can be tempted to fall and be just like that atheist and live as if there's no God and resurrect yourself as a God. You may be fooled into believing, too, possibly that you are saved when you're not. And the Bible says to examine yourselves, whether you're in the faith. This morning, we have spent ample time looking at the fool, the atheist, who lives as if there is no God but we also want to look at the difference between the atheist and the righteous. And you say, it says in this passage that, that there is none righteous. That is true. With, apart from Christ, there is none that are righteous, right? But then later on in the text, though, who does he talk about? There are people that are righteous. And we're going to examine who they are here, though. And that's the key. We'll get there in a moment. But let us look at the difference between the atheist and the righteous. Notice with me in verse 5. It says here, for God is with a righteous people or generation. Before time began, before the world was created, God decided with the triune Godhead that he would create for himself a people, ecclesia, a called out people that he set aside for his son to redeem. And who is that? That is the righteous generation. It's those that are in Christ. It says here, for God is with a righteous generation, verse 5. What marks out this righteous generation, though? We have to see where this righteousness comes from, because it does not come from within, does it? It's not in me, it's not in you. The answer comes from without, it comes from above, it comes from, from God through Christ. And here it is in this passage, it says this, but the Lord is his refuge. That's a righteous person. You want to be a righteous person today? You're convicted. You're, man, I'm a sinner. Uh, here's the question, though. Are you taking refuge in Jesus Christ alone? Do you run to the cross when convicted of sin? Maybe you had a moment this week where you were not living quorum Deo, where you're not living before the face of God. You messed up. You tripped up. How many of you did that this week? My hand's up. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. The only difference between us and someone who is crying out there is no God is this. Do you take refuge in the only place of righteousness which comes from Zion? Do you take refuge in Christ? The righteous person understands he's not a righteous person. Christianity is utterly humiliating. It's honest with our own sin. It's honest with our mess-ups. It says, God, I did it again. I messed up. Cleanse me. Whose robes of righteousness are you wearing? If it's not Christ's, you are no different. And without those robes, we are no different. Do you and I rest in the only true righteousness that's available, which comes from nail-scarred hands? Nail-scarred feet from a side that has been driven with a spear. Do you run to Christ? Do you run to God? Do you run to Zion? In verse 7, isn't that where David calls the nation to run to? 
Yes, there is wickedness out there. There's wickedness in all of us. But the only difference is, nation of Israel, find righteousness in Christ, in the Redeemer, in Zion. Take hope in that. Do you rest in God's character, his goodness, his grace, and his mercy? The righteous person runs to God. He looks to Zion. He runs to the only place of righteousness, which is at the foot of the cross. It's in the empty tomb. It's in him preaching over hell for you and for me and conquering it in our place. So the only difference between the atheist and the believer is where he places his trust. The atheist places places his trust in himself, in his strength, in his power. He's the ubermensch. He's to be worshipped. We're like, no thank you. Look at the Lamb of God. Look how great he is. Look at your king. In verse 4, it says the atheists, and, and it says, quote, and do not call upon the Lord. They don't call on the Lord. We do. The righteous one looks to God alone. So David's response, is it arrogant? Quite the opposite. It's humble. Notice then with me as well how David responds to all of this. Instead of wallowing in self-pity, instead of wallowing in, in hopelessness, look at all this wickedness around us, he takes the stance of the Lord. He's sharing with the congregation here that God sees these Things too in verses two and three. Do you notice that it is God speaking here? He sees this, that there's none righteous. David takes the stance of God, sees that there's none righteous. He points to the only place of righteousness. And in verse seven, David desires the congregation, the generation of the righteous, to understand that though there are those who would live as if there is no God, we, his people, take refuge in God so that all the congregation can cry out for the Redeemer to come through Zion. He asked that he would restore her fortunes as well. Is that wrong to ask? Not at all. He looks forward in hope, expecting to rejoice. He expects to be glad about this. And David saw the wickedness of mankind and, and it led the, the righteous to express their hope in God alone. And he looked forward to rejoicing in the salvation that God would bring. My goal this morning is that you and I would learn to grieve that way with hope. As you may be grieving with your own sin this morning, or maybe a spouse's sin, or a child's sin, or, or, or frustrations at work, I pray that you will learn how to respond to wickedness by looking to the only cure, the only place of righteousness and resting and trusting and hoping in that. That's hard to learn. It's hard to learn how to grieve over sin. And I'm not calling for a morbid introspection, but an honest assessment of our own sin. While at the same time rejoicing, praise God, he's cleansed me. I'm righteous. I don't deserve that. Over and over, as, as we're catechizing our children, which is a fancy word for teaching our children, the Bible. Over and over, as, as we, we study the scripture, there's tears. Just this last week, there's tears in confession. Starts now with your children. Teach them to break over sin. Teach them that it's okay to tell mom and dad I've sinned. They should feel welcome to come running to you with their sin because don't you and I need to do that all the time with God our Father? 
God, I've sinned, but praise God, I stand here because of your son. I'm righteous because of your son. So I pray that we learn how to grieve over sin while at the same time rejoicing in the forgiveness that God gives us through Zion, through Jesus Christ, through the only perfect Lamb of God that takes away our sin. Let's close in a word of prayer. And then I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand with me as we close in prayer. And we're going to sing uh, with the worship team, Victory in Jesus. Father, I ask today that these words would rest within our hearts in a way that gives us the freedom to confess, the freedom to rejoice in the salvation that comes through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that you call out our sin. We thank you that though we were born in sin, in rebellion to you, that Jesus Christ sought us out, brought us to the place of faith, brought us to the point of repenting and believing and trusting in the only place of righteousness which is found through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we give you thanks and we give you all the glory. Amen.